LARP Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, LARB's editor-in-chief, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have a conversation with Leslie Jameson about her new memoir called Splinters, Another Kind of Love Story. And this is about a very zeitgeist topic of the last few weeks, um, an evergreen zeitgeist, but it seems to be coming up a lot more in media, which is divorce. Yeah, divorce. It is very zeitgeisty. And this book, I think this book is part of the propellers of that conversation. And it's also partly about, you know, how much can, how much can people disclose about other people in their work? How much exposure is too much? And what what does art allow? And this book kind of touches on all of those subjects. So I think Leslie is probably one of the most, probably one of the most thoughtful practitioners of this kind of writing. Yeah, yeah. The book is about divorce, but it seems like actually her true subject is herself in terms of how she processes what's happened. It also covers new motherhood. She got divorced when her child was 13 months old. There's a lot of getting into the you know year after following the divorce, raising her child, working, reflecting back on certain behaviors, kind of puncturing ideas about the self and about how things work in the world in terms of ourselves and other people and ideas like Maybe it's hard to ever be sure of something, which is a theme that comes up here. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I found that pretty easy to relate to. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, yeah, okay. I was going to say. I was going <laughs> to say. I don't think staying married is, um, is a surefire way to be sure. That's all I'll say. But it, it's more, I think it's, a, I think it's an equation. Oh, it's, someone's on notice. Ouch, ouch. No, I, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I mean, I've, I've always been kind of a fickle paramour. That's mm. part of my problem. And that's maybe why I never really had a long-term, super long-term relationship until I got married. But I think doubt and questioning is just part of the process. And to me, I always think it's more like the scales like how how mm-hmm. weighed down are the scales with doubt and how much does the doubt just come in fleeting moments and, and then pass? And that seems natural to me. And maybe there are other people who are just more steadfast. But I, that's why this book was really interesting to me to hear how other people do it. I know. I mean, that's always like part of the question, right? Like, and something that I also always wonder, I'm like, well, is doubt, how much do people live with doubt? And how easy is it for them? Because you don't, you don't really know. You can't tell from the outside. I know. know. And I I agree. And that's why I really like that Emily Gould piece that's been circulating a lot too recently, because I think that was a, an example of someone who had so much doubt and resentment that it kind of exploded. Right. But 
there was some underlying link below all that that made her stay in her marriage. And this was a kind of viral piece in New York Magazine where she talks about losing her mind and deciding to divorce her husband and then kind of slowly working their way back. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty typical story as well. You know, I know a lot of people that split up for a little bit or open their relationship for a little bit and then ultimately decide to stay together. And I also know people now who are getting divorced. So fascinating, fascinating uh, topic. Yes. Love. Love. (laughs) Love and all its discontents. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject. And Leslie writes about it and all the many other things that go along with it in really interesting ways. So should we get to it? Yes, please. All right. We have Leslie Jameson joining us today. Leslie's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Recovering and The Empathy Exams, the collection of essays, Make It Scream, Make It Burn, and the novel, The Gin Closet. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Harper's, New York Review of Books, as well as our own pages. Leslie joins us to talk about her latest book, Splinters, Another Kind of Love Story, a memoir that chronicles the birth of her daughter and the collapse of her marriage soon after. Jameson writes about the bond with her own mother, as well as the intense, consuming love for her child. The book is not only a story about her most intimate relationships, but an examination of doubt, betrayal, forgiveness, and, as the subtitle says, love. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a huge LARB fan, and I actually, I feel almost like the LARB and I, if it's not too much to say, that we're kind of like siblings. Like, I feel like we've come up We've come up together a little bit. In any case, LARB is close to my heart. Precious. That's so nice. That's so nice. Yeah. I wanted to start, Leslie, with the title of the the book when it was excerpted in The New Yorker recently. I really liked this title. It was called The Birth of My Daughter, The Death of My Marriage. I think that's a really succinct way to kind of, you know, sum up the two stories here. But I I wondered if you saw them as two stories you were writing simultaneously or if it was really more one precipitating the other. It's a great question. And all credit to my wonderful editor, Leo, for that. He's great at at taking my complexities and turning them into brevity. And that title was an example of that. The book for me always, always existed as the intertwining of these stories. It would have, I think it would have been, I don't know, not impossible to conceive of it as just one or the other, but I, I don't think I would have been interested in it with the same urgency if it was just one or the other. It was really the the simultaneity that was most compelling to me, like this beginning really in this particular season, this particular winter, when I had just left my marriage and was living in this little sublet beside a firehouse. And it's where the book begins, like in the actual text, but it's also where the book began in terms of the process of writing it. And I was feeling deeply inside the raptures, I mean, the exhausting raptures of early motherhood and deeply inside this kind of reckoning with the end of my relationship. And life is simultaneity, no matter when you dip your cup into the waters of the stream, right? But like, that was a time of just acute simultaneity. Like I'm, I'm feeling this truly kind of insatiable love for my daughter 
and also this like deep feeling of sort of grief and bewilderment. And it was really trying to um, tell the story of those two feelings tangled together that was most compelling to me. It makes me think about my friend Catherine Schultz and her beautiful book, Lost and Found, which is itself divided into three parts. And it's about losing her father, meeting her wife, my friend Casey. And the third section is called and, titled like an ampersand, not even like the word. And that third section is really about simultaneity and kind of going through things at once. And it was a similar spirit of sort of capturing the all-at-onceness that felt part of the the DNA of the book from the start. And do you think becoming a mother put a spotlight on your marriage or did the pressures of raising a child make you see certain lacks in the relationship? What was the actual connection at the time between becoming a mother and the marriage coming undone? Yeah, there's a line in the book where I say something like that I had a kind of hope that having our daughter would usher our marriage into a different or better chapter, but instead it felt like it brought a deep kind of clarity about our life together, not feeling tenable to me, not feeling like the life I wanted to keep building or a life I could really imagine building, continuing to build. And I think it was really more that sense of the kind of radical clarity of having a child as a force sort of making me be just deeply, deeply honest about myself, with myself, about what was possible more than the kind of additional pressure being put on the thing, if that distinction mm-hmm. makes sense. I mean, certainly there there was like lots of pressure. A child always puts lots of pressure on everything, but it was more, it was more the ways in which my daughter and her presence in the world forced me to be honest with myself about what I wanted our life to be and less kind of about the strain. It also seemed to provide a kind of clarity about your relationship with your mom. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because there's like a weird triangulation that starts to happen in your family where it's you, your baby, and your mom kind of all taking care of each other. And your partner, or C is what he's called in the book, feels left out of that. And I wonder how how you gravitated so naturally to that kind of triangulation with your own mother and and how your relationship with your mom made that feel like a more natural fit for you. Yeah, I mean, the book, the book is... It, like in every way, a love letter to my daughter, but it's also so deeply and devotedly like a love letter to my mom. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to capture about our relationship in the book is that my relationship with my mother has always felt to me like a, a relationship in which I didn't need to perform a particular version of myself. Mm -hmm. And I say that also with a a knowing on some level that we're always performing in some some way. There's maybe no such thing as like selfhood outside of performance. But I think for me, at least so many relationships make that feel very explicit and powerful. Like I'm trying to be a certain way because I think that's the way you want me to be. And that my relationship with my mother has always felt like a relationship where I could bring all of the parts of myself that felt difficult, tedious, not particularly anything but the ordinary. And I think that that sense of a kind of capacious relationship that could hold even the parts of myself that felt least impressive or or least compelling, both just like has always created this default tone of 
ease and exhalation between us, at least for me, but also particularly like the newborn months are months of just, I mean, they're months of like profundity and, and molecular rearrangement and all of this existential stuff, but they're also moments of just like tedium and exhaustion and like not having a single interesting thing to say mm-hmm. and just like, when was the last feeding? And, and so I think I felt like a, an extremely embodied, extremely kind of ordinary version of myself in those days. And so it made that much more sense that sort of the person who had always been able to hold those parts of me was the person I felt most at home with. In addition to the kind of, just sense of a like matrilineal line and that awareness of like my mothering felt like it was already coming from her in some way. It was coming from what she had given me. And so that, I think that's also part of why that triangulation felt natural. But of course, that tri- the writing of that triangle in the book and the ways in which I was trying to articulate its kind of gravitational force was also a way in which I was trying to... Um, hold myself accountable for some of the distance and schism in our marriage, you know, that there was very much a way that I was only willing to lean in one direction. And I wanted, I wanted to write that part of the story too. I mean, in the book, you're so critical of yourself in a lot of ways. You really like do not give yourself a break. (laughs) (laughs) And it does seem that your mother is the person who you can receive love from that you, the, alignment that happens when you become a mother is because you actually really need care yourself. You're giving care. There's a beautiful part where you sit on the, maybe it's the hospital bed or your bed at home with your mother and you suddenly see like her love for you through your love for your daughter. And I found that very, very powerful. And your relationship with her is seems like in so many ways, so simpatico, ideal. She's a very, very strong person. She sounds like very even. She's been this rock. And at the same time, the book really goes into so much of this emptiness inside of yourself, this insatiability, this way which the desired object obtained doesn't evaporate in the air once you have it, filling these holes. Mm. So I thought that that was such a untwining of a story that we often tell about damaged in a person coming from their mother. Mm-hmm. That here you hold up a, a really ideal relationship with a mother, and yet you present yourself in the book as having like such a deep chasm inside. It's a beautiful observation and not a lens, I mean, usefully, like not a lens that I've ever particularly thought about the book through. I mean, of course, I thought about the book through the lens of like the mother relationship and through the lens of like the great big gaping maw of a <laughs> of a hole inside and my various attempts to both like fill that hole and write that hole and writing as yet another way to try to fill the hole. I think I'm always a believer in dismantling our most ready to hand stories about kind of trauma dominoes or something like that, or where a certain kind of pain happens and it leaves a certain kind of hole and stories that we've maybe heard too many times about how that happens. And so in that sense, I'm I'm glad to be telling another kind of story in which a kind of internal shakiness isn't, isn't traceable to like the lack of maternal love. And I also, you know, I think that maybe they the easy next step is like to turn to the father, right? And in the book, the role that my father plays is a more complicated role. He was for certain portions of my life more absent 
And I think there are certain parts of my psyche that are still kind of tuned into the radio station of his absence. And in that way, like one of the things that I was writing, and it wasn't necessarily one of the things that I set down to write when I started working on this book, but a book always has its intentional plot lines and then the ways in which it ambushes you. And I think the extent to which I I did end up excavating some of the impact that my parents and their marriage and their divorce had on me was one of the the ambushes of the book, one of the things that I didn't necessarily go in there expecting. And so I do think there's part of me that feels like sort of solidified by mother love, part of me that's tuned into the radio station of like needing to please the father or sort of like seduce the father back into presence. But I also wanted to disrupt a story that was, I think, a story that I told myself too frequently or too neatly in earlier eras of my life about my father's absence. And in this book, it was important for me to kind of both tell the story of a certain distance that existed between us in my youth, but also, you know, in recovery, we talk about playing the tape through. And that phrase usually applies to when you remember a sort of nostalgic version of drinking, play the tape through and like remember also where it always took you, where it landed, how it unraveled. And I think for me, one way in which I had to play the tape through in this in this book had to do with my dad and the ways in which our relationship has evolved in all of these incredible ways, like in my adulthood. Like we've now had decades, a couple of decades of knowing each other as adults. And he's been this incredible kind of loving substantial presence, not a totally uncomplicated presence, but a real presence. And so I wanted to let him, you know, at one point in the book, I say, like, we got the chance to outlive our distances. And I wanted to let him, as a character in the book, sort of outlive this story maybe I told myself about how I was shaped by his his absence. None of that fully answers the question of, like, where does the great big hole come from? (laughs) But I also think, like, is it so rare to feel some version of that? Like, I, I don't think it is. I think that so much of experience for at least a lot of people I know, involves sort of carrying around some feeling of a lack inside. And I actually don't think that that some, some version of a lack inside is necessarily a sort of dysfunctional or toxic thing. Like, I think that we're not built to be self-sufficient creatures. We're built to need things from each other and from the world. And maybe it's more about how we act on that, that sense of lack than the problem being its existence in the first place. The thing about living our distances is so beautiful, but it also strikes me that it has like its counterpart, which is that we also outlive our proximities. And in some ways, maybe that that's partially what happens in relationships, but it, it also really, I mean, it really happens with our parents that the proximities that we have, and this really strikes me as like a person with a baby, she's already kind of outliving the proximities that we've had to each other, you know, that were so extremely intense in the beginning. And they're already, they're already more distant. They're not as distant as they will be, but. And I wonder, you mentioned before we went on air that your daughter is six. And I wonder how it felt going back to these days of such intense proximity to her. You write about the hours that you spend walking together of she's close against your chest. You're like, literally, you know, almost with each other all the time. And I wonder how it felt to go back to that and maybe register some outliving of that proximity. First of all, I love that. 
I love that foiling or that pairing of these two relational dynamics, outliving our distances and outliving our proximities. And and it strikes me sometimes, and I think this is a way of answering the question about my daughter, it strikes me that both outliving our distances and outliving our proximities are ways of speaking about maybe entering into new eras. When we like outlive the old proximities, it's also about making way for like new ways of being close to each other, right? And they might not look exactly like the old ways of being close to each other, but there's something about the transformations that I think always occur in a relationship that involves like, maybe you're always grieving in some way what closeness felt like before, even as you're creating the terms of the new closeness. And I guess I've thought about that most acutely maybe in terms of friendships. Like I was, I've always been somebody who had these like very consuming kind of friendships as partnerships. I had them in high school. I had them with my college roommate. And always in those formative friendships, there is inevitably a kind of threshold that you cross, or at least in my experience, where you can't be close in the same way that you were. Like I haven't lived with my college roommate for many, many years, and she's still a hugely important part of my life. But we actually had to, we had to like grieve that we weren't going to be together for like 10 hours a day and figure out what closeness was going to look like between us if it was not that. And I think my relationship to my parents' marriage is maybe another version of like outliving one kind of proximity, but also creating then the next chapter where they were married for 22 years and then divorced, but have found their way to this sort of remarkable and quite unusual friendship. And that feels like maybe an instance of both outliving a certain kind of proximity and then outliving a certain kind of distance and then finding themselves in this wonderful sort of, I don't know if we quite have a name for it, bond that they currently (laughs) share. And So I think all this is a way of saying with my daughter, we've certainly outlived certain kinds of proximities. We've outlived the days when her body lived against my body for 20 hours a day. Um, And I miss that. I miss that kind of proximity. But the letting go of that does make room for other things. Like the very forces that make her a kind of more autonomous, separate creature also allow for a kind of otherness or separateness that enables different forms of awe. Like I often feel awed by her mind, her imagination. The things that she says to me just the other day, she was playing a game that she described to me as I thought I was right, but I wasn't right. You know, and that, that was just the name of the game. And I was like, oh my God, miss. what a game. And like, maybe all, like, I know so many people who should be playing that game and aren't playing that game. But just that it all feels connected to me, right? Like the fact that she is now this creature who has so many different things, like so many different worlds happening inside of her. And I get to see them and glimpse them and she gets to share them with me and I get to hear them. Like all of that, electricity does feel like it's actually contingent on otherness and separateness and the fact that her mind is not my mind and her mind is creates things that my mind couldn't make and her mind shares with me things that my my own mind couldn't have produced and so I mean we're also close in all of the like I just made her hummus and pickle sandwich daily ways but I think it's a beautiful question and I think there's a way that yeah I guess um the loss of certain kinds of closeness also makes room for different different forms of, I don't know, different forms of communion. You know, talking about 
outliving intimacies. It feels like romantic partnerships are often the relationships that have maybe less flexibility than others, you know, in, in some ways. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, if we could go back to the death of your marriage and just how the relationship with C, I, I felt like it was very telling that the relationship with C starts to really unfold after you talk about getting this magazine in your hand and then not really knowing what to do with the desire for it. So I was wondering how the relationship unfolded for you, how it felt, if it did feel different from others in the past, and then that breaking point. And it seems like a lot of times in the book, you're struggling with wanting to be sure about something, but then not being able to completely trust your gut because your gut as a recovering alcoholic has told you other times to do things that you actually don't want to do. And I feel like that's um, something that a lot of people struggle with, with intimacy, that someone can feel wrong, but yet it's not always the right feeling. Yeah, it's a great sort of multi-pronged <laughs> Borgesian garden of forking <laughs> paths question. I think the story you're referencing in the book is this memory from childhood where I can remember really, really wanting a bridal magazine. I don't even, I mean, I guess they still must make them. It feels like it's been so long since I've spent time in these like magazine aisles that existed in, I don't know, an LA supermarket in 1993. But I was obsessed with these huge, fat, like almost phone book size bridal magazines that had the little perfume samples in them and all the dresses. And I talk about really badly wanting one. And my mom was sort of dismayed that I had this like bridal fantasy. And But I talk about remembering so much wanting one and then having no memory of what it was like to actually have it. And that's a way of gesturing towards, I think, what has been a recurring lifelong struggle, which is that desire has been a more natural groove than possession in some way. Not to say that I actually think that long-term intimacy is best described in terms of possession exactly. I think we never <laughs> fully really possess other people, but that wanting a certain thing has felt easier than having it. And I think that it's connected really to that question of certainty and that I sort of have always fantasized that kind of long-term stable intimacy, that feeling of, of having something, having someone, or at least having someone in that kind of stable relation, that it would always come attached to a feeling of just knowing. But I think I've also had a really fraught relationship to the idea of knowing. And as you say, like, I really think I spent my 20s struggling with having a kind of profoundly destabilized relationship to my own gut instincts. Like I drank alcoholically and then getting sober was so much about saying, I can't, I can't trust my gut in this particular way. I have to trust a kind of upper level intention instead. My twenties were also dominated by this like passionate, like incredibly meaningful four-year relationship with like an absolutely lovely human being with whom I was not destined to spend this life. You know, like there was something that ultimately wasn't compatible about us as partners. And I think those years were also spent in this like totally fraught relationship with my own gut. Like at one point in the book, I say like, when my mom told me, well, what is, she asked me, what is your gut telling you? And I said, well, my gut tells me two completely contradictory things at once, which is that we can never be together. And also that he's my soulmate, you know? <laughs> and, and I think Part of my trouble with my gut has been often that I, what I hear my gut saying are often these sort of like 
black or white extreme positions. And none of those extreme positions actually ever end up being completely correct because mostly life is about muddling through in some in-between way instead. But I think one of the things I struggled with, and, and I write about this in the book with my marriage, was that it there was tremendous amount of love there and see, and I really try to honor this in the book, is in like so many ways a really extraordinary person. But our relationship was quite difficult from the very beginning. And I think that for me, part of what went wrong was not that that the relationship went wrong at a certain point, but it actually wasn't particularly tenable from very early on. And I just didn't listen to that because everything that felt difficult to me almost read as a sign that it was worthwhile. And that that sense of kind of translating that felt sense of difficulty or even impossibility, not into maybe this isn't right, but instead into maybe I need to double down and try harder. And there's something I'm not doing right. This is why this feels hard. I think that all comes back to that kind of fraught relationship to one's gut impulses and feeling like, no, 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 actually... What feels hard is just a sign that I somehow need to figure out how to, how to do it better. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Leslie Jameson, author of Splinters. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have poet and novelist Philip B. Williams with us on the line today. Philip is the author most recently of the novel Hours, and he joins us today to give us this week's book recommendation. So, Philip, what book are you recommending? It took me a while to think about it, but I'm going to be recommending the Black book edited by Toni Morrison. And it's difficult to talk about the book in as much as it is a compilation, a scrapbook, a book of memories, histories, images that speak to the many ways that Black history and Black people developed in the United States before the 1960s. One of Morrison's concerns was that history had become for those during the time when she was, you know, really doing her editing Black history had become something that started in the 1960s, and she wanted it to go back as far as she could find documentation. So there are patterns in there, there's sheet music, there are recipes for conjure, if you want to speak to the inspiration that the Black book had on ours. And it's a book that I interacted with very early on as a writer because the edition that I have is the 1975 edition. And in 2009, the 35th anniversary edition came out. And I do not have that version. I am holding on to my two tattered copies of the 1975 version of the book. But it has been, I can't describe the inspiration that that book has given me over the past couple of decades that I've had it. Now, it sounds to me... uh... I hate to admit my own ignorance. I have actually not read the Black Book, but now I will, which is why I love doing these book recommendations. But it sounds like there's a kind of like multidisciplinary, kind of like multi-genre 
style to that book. And I obviously, this is something we kind of talked about a little bit when we were discussing ours. And I wonder, you know, how did that influence you? Are there any particular pieces in the Black Book that you particularly resonated with or that like have are kind of always in the back of your mind? The first thing I remember reading in the Black Book were these poetic quotes from Henry Dumas that they weren't interludes in the way, but the book has scattered throughout it different kinds of writing. And at that time, I believe I was, had to have been an undergrad. And so I was studying poetry. And those were the shortest documents in the book. And so I read those quickly and they were beautiful. Just, and I had never read Henry Dumas before. And so what attracted me was the lyricism and the mysticism of his writing in particular. He was a very spiritual writer. And I was also attracted to the fact that there has so it has so many pictures in it. It's a very visual book. Even the way that it's laid out, it feels as though it is absolutely a scrapbook or it has a kind of journalistic feel to it. Maybe as if you're reading actual newspaper clippings are in there, for instance. So it's created to in my opinion, bring those into history who otherwise would be intimidated by the dryness that history is usually presented in as historians typically write for other historians. And so this book was for a more general public. All right, that sounds great. Can you give us the author and title one more time? So this is The Black Book, and it is edited by Toni Morrison. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Philip B. Williams, author most recently of Ours. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Leslie Jameson, author of Splinters. Maybe we can talk about, you write very candidly in this book about your ambition, your work, your desire to be recognized for that work. You have been widely recognized for the work. And how you feel about writing about that and potentially the role that it played in your marriage. So I think the question about work feels so connected in ways that I write about in the book and even in some ways that I don't write about in the book. I'm thinking about what I was just saying about kind of my 20s as this time of destabilized self-relation or destabilized relation to intuition, right? That I was like, can't trust myself because I always want to drink. Can't trust myself because I want to be with this person who it seems actually impossible to be with. I think the the one <laughs> zone in my life where I have not felt kind of racked by self-doubt is really my relationship with work. And I felt that contrast so... It's not to say that I've never struggled in writing or the creative process or professional feelings or anything like that, but it's always felt like this part of me that's like a compass. It's, it's just like my true north <laughs> is wanting to make books and it just wanting to write. And that I just, I can trust, I feel a kind of stability in that desire and that devotion that I just have not always felt in other regions of my life. And I think I've felt the contrast most acutely around romance, where it's just like, I 
sometimes I felt like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to be in sustainable partnership, but I do know how to do this other thing. I do know how to write, but it's less about capacity. Like, so maybe I'm not quite saying it right because it's just about desire. It's like about something that has felt stable to me in that desire. So I think it has always felt like this incredibly kind of stabilizing force because to be able to trust a desire is like no small thing. And I think I have learned to trust that desire. In terms of writing about my life as a writer in the book, like I'll say a couple things. For me, I have to swallow a certain fear or shame or anticipatory shame or something that like nobody wants to read about a writer writing. Nobody wants to read about a writer's, or maybe there are like 10 writers who want to read about a writer's relationship to writing. But I I had a kind of confrontation with that in my book, The Recovering, which came out in 2018. I write about it a little bit in this book. And that is a book about addiction and creativity and recovery. And early drafts of that book, I didn't, I was writing about so many other writers and artists and their, how both addiction and recovery influence their relationship to their creative lives. But in the first drafts, I didn't write about my own writing life at all because I felt like somehow it was like, felt too, I felt somehow more like navel gazing than any other way of writing about the self. And some of my early readers said, look, it's just really fucking weird that you write about all these other writers and their writing and you you're not writing about your own writing life at all. You, you write about your life as just like a sequence of relationships with men. And I realized <laughs> they were right. So I had to kind of swallow a certain resistance and just figure out, okay, how is there a way that I can write about my writing life that's interesting, at least to me, and hopefully to somebody else. And so here I really, I did want to write about the relationship between motherhood and creativity, how motherhood was sort of shaping the ways that I was seeing the world, compressing my relationship to time, but also doing, deepening my desire to, in a way, to do that thing that writing does allow me to do or makes me feel when it's going well, which is that I'm kind of touching something large and mysterious that I can't quite comprehend, but I'm getting to sort of see its edges a little bit. And But I also felt aware that it was sort of like there was the writing about writing as a creative practice and then thinking about writing as a professional practice too. And they those would feel quite different even as they're connected. And that it's, it's always easier for me to write about. There's something that feels kind of shiny and appealing about like, you know, I was a mother and I loved my child, but I also loved work and I wanted to work, you know, and, and that it's harder to write the version of myself that was like, I wanted the book to do well. I wanted people to read it. I wanted people to love it. You know, this kind of both the, the professional hustle of helping one's work move into the world and the, the desire. So those were some of the forms of some forms of honesty feel easier for me than others. And some of that writing about ambition was definitely a a harder species of honesty to bring to the page. And lastly, in terms of the relationship between kind of my life as a writer and the way I was writing about my marriage in the book, I think it connects very much to this distinction between the creative parts of a writing life and the professional parts of a writing life. As two writers... I felt that actually sharing, sharing both a commitment to writing and a commitment to each other's writing always felt like one of the most beautiful dimensions of my marriage to me. One of the richest and deepest and most reciprocal, like that we read each other, we respected each other, we genuinely wanted to be useful to each other as readers. And I, I tried to write 
that and kind of honor that. I think navigating, I don't know, just the emotional volatility of just the professional dimensions of being a writer and wanting to feel loved by the world and like seen by the world. And the volatility of those feelings was like a much harder space in our marriage. And I write about that just a very little bit. And of course, as with all the things I wrote about, just a very little bit in the book, all of that is intentional. You know, there's so much, there's so much of life that is in these pages and so much of life that's not. But I do think that that was a kind of pain that I wanted to honor in the book, that actually it felt painful to feel so deeply connected to each other as artists and for it to feel so like such a source of friction sometimes, the kind of professional dimensions of these two artistic lives, like sharing space in one marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it even seems there's always, I think, in relationships, an idea of equity. And so it's like one person has a good day professionally, maybe not even just creatively, like, oh, you got all these things today and I didn't get any. And somehow it seems unfair. It's hard to avoid that no matter what the two people are doing, I would think. Yeah. And I think another thing that that I wanted to, I guess, recognize or, or write into around that, around that feeling of 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 maybe the inevitability of certain things feeling hard is that I actually think both of us really tried. We tried the best we could to support each other, even when things didn't feel totally equal or, and that two people trying (laughs) as hard as they can isn't always enough. And I really wanted to try to write it that way rather than the version of the story where, you know, that you can often feel when you're inside the story, which is like, I'm trying really, really hard. And what's the other person doing? But I I think for so many things, it was like both of us, both of us trying really hard. (laughs) Something you also kind of address in the book is this moment of writing the story as it's unfolding. And that comes up a lot in terms of motherhood that, you know, there's this part where you say the, the critic in you and the mother in you argued because it's the critic wanted to kind of only see the lyrical, or maybe this was more as you're writing down what had happened in a day. The critic wants to see the lyrical details, like the the way the hands look, you know, like the smell of your baby, all these things. And and the mother wants everything. And it even comes up later where you're kind of like talking to people and telling them this story of how things have been and what your daughter is like. And they're like, Leslie, I think she's choking. You know, (laughs) That, that happens a few times. And it seems like, you know, there's a tension in the book between the lived version of what happened and the way you are presenting it, you know, because Mm -hmm. you are a beautiful writer and and a lot of times the prose has a very pristine quality. And yes, we can feel the things that have been left out, the everything that's been left out. But it also seems like just the biggest tension for any writer, like how you experience life when your impulse is to immediately start to try to run it through the word processor in your head. And maybe not only writers, clearly, because everyone tells themselves stories about how things are going. But when it's actually like your profession to do that, it seems hard. So lots to say. I think there's there's a part of experience that is always this kind of, I don't know, a double-decker bus where you're both living through an experience and thinking about how you will someday remember it or how you will someday tell the story of it, whether telling the story of it is like 
in a book or in a magazine or to your friend over drinks that night or to your daughter 20 years from now. Or I do think that there's some version of that split consciousness that is part of everybody's experience of the world, whether or not you're a writer, you know, it's like maybe also captured by like, uh, are you on vacation? If Are you freely on vacation when you're always taking pictures of vacation? And that's part of the point of being on vacation is like someday looking back at these pictures and remembering being on vacation. But I think this split consciousness can often get a sort of bad rap. Like I think it can often be associated with like, if you are anticipating the telling of a thing, you're not really inside of it. That somehow there are so many ways we fetishize like what purity of presence is or what like authentic presence is. Like you're not thinking about anything else. You're not daydreaming about anything else. You're not anticipating how you'll look back at this moment. You're not anticipating how you'll write it or how you'll tell the story of it. And I don't know. I think I, I'm really allergic to ideas of purity in general, I think they're actually really like toxic and all sorts of broader cultural ways. But I think this kind of fetishized sense of presence means you're not thinking about anything else. You're not anticipating the future. You're not remembering the past. Like that's just so far away from what presence has ever felt like that I think I've become much more interested in like presence as this kind of striated, messy thing where to be imagining how one might someday tell the story of a thing is like, actually that can be part of real presence rather than its enemy or rather than a sign that it's not actually happening. And I wanted, because I actually also think there are these ways that like making meaning out of experience, even as we're still inside of experience can actually be like genuinely enriching our experience, like helping us understand it, helping us make sense of it. Like I think that those sort of processes of, cognition and interrogation and narration can be ways that we more deeply inhabit life. So I wanted, when I was writing the book, I wanted to kind of honor both sides of it. Like I definitely wanted to make fun of myself in all of these moments. Like the moment where I'm talking about, okay, yeah, like motherhood is like made me so attentive to all the smallest details of the world. And like one of my students is like, I think your daughter is like choking on a grape right now, you know? And there's another moment where me and my daughter in this apartment that we're about to move into. And I'm like looking at this tree outside the window and it's like has these little buds on it and they're about to bloom. And I'm thinking about, oh my God, this new season for us. And then it's like, oh, it turns out she'd actually just like picked up a nail from the floor and like put it in her mouth. And I was like, oh my God, the moral of the story is like, forget about the fucking moral of the story and just take care of your daughter. So those are moments where I'm like, okay, sometimes getting too caught up in the story of, experience actually takes you away from experience, from the texture of experience. But I think I also have a deep investment in the ways that telling the story of experience is a way that you can kind of meaningfully inhabit and keep re-inhabiting and keep figuring out what life has meant, what moments have meant to you, what, what relationships mean and can hold. And maybe for me, a lot of it comes down to like, that process remaining fluid and evolving and like that we kind of keep turning things over in our minds rather than the kind of stagnation of like, I've settled on a version of the story and then there can be a kind of brittleness or rigidity in that. But yeah, I think I also have a great tenderness for that part of anyone's self that is sort of wanting there to be 
a story that they're inside of and wanting to somehow believe in or touch that there's something that there are many meanings and what's <laughs> what's happening to them. I I've always felt a kind of animosity towards the version of like ditty and cynicism that comes up when she's sort of dismissive of like we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I think, well, yeah, but I, I think sometimes that's okay. You know, is that always a bad thing? Is that always the fool's crutch, you know, or or can it maybe be something more? And I think it it only maybe in that way too, it also is Didion saying like we tell certain stories and leave others out. We formulate one story and it we miss everything else that was happening over here, the other mm-hmm. reasons why. Mm-hmm. And, and just in terms of, you know, this the book to me is also so much about kind of like the craft of writing because you teaching writing is a recurring theme in the book. And I was wondering with the memoir, you write personally, but this is kind of like your first complete memoir, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And if you, and I'm assuming that you like work with students on that, on memoirs. And I was just wondering if there's like, um, you know, like I think in novels, people always have this assumption that like the character has to change, that there has to be some shift and that they can't start the book in the same place that they end. And I was wondering if if memoir is similar or is it more that you have to not necessarily change, but understand yourself, if that's like the objective. I love that you snuck in this final question, <laughs> both because teaching and you know, in many ways, like being a student of my students, in addition to hopefully in other ways, being their teacher is a big and important thread of this book for me. And one of the things the book is interested in is just maybe how a sense of family can evolve over time and how in the case of the particular story I'm telling in these pages, like how one version of family more traditional nuclear family sort of fell apart, but that intimacy came to feel kind of messier, but in all these ways, like very, even more beautiful and expansive to me. And that part, you know, that that was like about not only my relationships with my extended family, but like my relationships with my friends and my relationships with my students. So there's all this intimacy that's part of the story that's like extra familial intimacy, I guess. And that's like an important part of the book to me. But I think it's a great question about transformation. I do, I don't know whether it has to be true in all memoirs, but in this book, there were a couple of ways that I wanted the book to end somewhere different than it began and the narrator of the book to end somewhere different from where she had begun. And I guess two of the big ones that I can point to, and I don't think these will count as plot spoilers, because it's not really a plot spoiler kind of book. I think one of them actually really has to do with this idea of purity that we were talking about earlier, That or very early on in the book, there's this question, there's this moment where I'm like watching my daughter play her rainbow xylophone, and I kind of turn as if to say something to see, like, oh, look at her go, like, she's insane, she's possessed, and but of course he's not there, and there's this question in that moment of like, would every moment of kind of happiness feel actually haunted by this feeling of grief, self-recrimination, loss, failure, whatever. And that by the end, I actually really, I pretty explicitly return to that question of like, basically, is every moment of beauty going to feel tarnished in some way by, by this like loss and this rupture? And in that moment of returning, it's like, 
yes, every moment is going to hold grief <laughs> inside of it. And, and that's okay. Maybe that's what beauty always is, you know? So this sense of kind of, rather than solving the problem of, of pain or asking it to somehow not be baked into everything, it's sort of just living alongside of it, living alongside of it as like one of the presences in life. And so I think there is a kind of a shifted awareness that I'm trying to, or a shifted kind of frame that I'm trying to document there. And I think the other shift that feels like an important one to me is actually connected, Medea, to your question earlier about outliving proximities. There's a little bit of a dialectical structure to me in the book around me and my daughter, where it's like the first section, we're so just like radically entwined. In the second section, the first section is called milk. The second section is called smoke. And it's about a lot of things. But one of them is this sort of impulse to be free and this like hunger for freedom and recklessness and the way that I want also to be a separate and autonomous person. And the third section, which is called fever and is partially about COVID quarantine, but is I also really imagine as a kind of synthesis, it's like, here's how the kind of mother-daughter bond can hold both this sense of like, we as two human beings are like deeply and forever entwined. And also it's okay for us to be each of us more than the other. And each of us sometimes long to be separate from the other. And so that kind of like motion towards and then motion away from, and then attempting to sort of land inside a version of that bond that can hold both of those energies at once is like another another way I understand some of the progressions of the book. Beautiful. So beautiful. Um, Thank you, Leslie. God, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you both. It's really such a pleasure to just not just hear your questions about the book, but just spend spend time with your ways of thinking about the world. Truly. It's hmm. so nice. nice. Thanks. Our ways are exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. That was Leslie Jameson. Her new book is called Splinters, Another Kind of Love Story. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Blotton.